Morning, church. It's great to have you out this morning. Thank you for choosing to worship with us. Just want to thank the worship team for some wonderful music that we could worship the Lord with uh, this morning. Thank you so much. Uh, Just so grateful for that, for the team and the countless hours they pour into ministering to us so that we may be able to lift our voices to the Lord. And uh, for those of you who don't know me, my name is Jared Clark. I'm a member of the leadership team here at Alpine Bible Church, our senior pastor, Nathaniel Wall. He had a death in the family last week, and uh, he and his family traveled back east to attend the funeral yesterday. And so uh, just if you would continue to pray along with me for uh, God's uh, comfort and peace to be upon them and traveling mercies as, mercies as they uh, return home this week, I'd greatly appreciate that. And so the good news is if you don't like my preaching this morning, next week, Lord willing, Nathaniel will be back, all right? All right, so I just want to welcome you, the visitors that are here this morning. We're grateful that you're here. Hope that you got a green bag or a, a welcome packet. Tells you a little bit about our, our church and what we're all about. And if you have any questions, please feel free to flag me down or anyone at the front door there. We'd love to encourage you any way we can. So uh, last week we finished up the series in Daniel. So I'm thankful for that. I don't have to preach on Daniel. Very thankful for that. And uh, instead, I'm able to preach on something that's been on my heart lately, um, and that's uh, the importance of, of body unity. And uh, just so important that we all, as a body, understand the importance and what that means. And, um, and so that's, uh, as a member of the leadership team here at church, that's a constant prayer that when we meet, as we send up to God, is that God would help us in being unified here at Alpine Bible and the message that we preach uh, to be unified to the, to the lost and dark world around us. And uh, so that's always something that's on our hearts here at the leadership team. But also, uh, I'm a member of the, the missions team that will be traveling to India here in a couple weeks. And uh, so, you know, unity has obviously been on our, all of our mind there. We have several different people from different backgrounds, different upbringings, right? All going to be traveling very close quarters with one another, all working and laboring in a foreign land. So obviously the, the concern for unity is of, of utmost importance. All right. And, uh, and so this passage of scripture that we're going to be in today, uh, the Apostle Paul really speaks on unity and hope, uh, two key ingredients that we all need to keep our eyes on as a church body. And I hope that it's, it's been just a blessing to me the last few weeks to just kind of camp out here and, uh, and uh, just uh, mind the, the riches and, uh, of what Paul is saying here to the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. So if you have your Bibles this morning, you can turn to Romans 15. We're going to be in the first 13 chapters and we'll, we'll get going here. Romans 15. And so um, what really caught my eye at first when I started just kind of meditating on this passage of Scripture, uh, uh, the, this first, there's two, actually two prayers that Paul has here in the 15th chapter. Two prayers that he gives to God on behalf of uh, the church at Rome. And the first one's found in verses 5 through 6. The first one says, Now may the God who gives perseverance and encouragement grant you to be of the same mind with one another according to Christ Jesus so that with one accord you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. What a great prayer, right? We can just end right now and have that prayer right now. There's a second one. Now may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace and believing. This is in verse 13. 
so that you will abound in hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. What wonderful prayers that we see here. And so you can see that the, the um, importance of body unity, building unity within our body uh, was not only important to us, but it was important to Paul. And uh, we just want to, before we get going here, we just want to make sure that we, we find or have the correct context and background in which Paul's writing this letter to the Church of Rome. So we don't, the danger is we're kind of parachuting into the kind of last half of this book of this letter that was written. And so we don't want to take anything out of context. So we've got to provide a little bit of background. A whole lot more would be best, but we're, we're short on time. So I just want to provide you a little bit of background. So this was uh, the Apostle Paul lit, wrote this letter to the church at Rome. Rome is obviously the center of the Roman uh, Empire. And so um, as um, just as the influence of, the, of, of Rome began to spread throughout the world, uh, as the Christian church began to, be, to spread, um, the influence and importance of the church at Rome began to um, increase as well. Um, but this church, most scholars would agree that it was started by people who had come down, Jews that had come down from Rome on the day of Pentecost to, to, to Jerusalem to participate in what was called uh, the Pentecost. Right? And this is a celebration, a week of the harvest or um, a festival of the harvest or a festival of the weeks is what it's called. And so they would all come from all throughout the known world. The Jews would come down and they would meet there and gather there and celebrate and do this uh, festival, participate in it. And um, this is where, if we look to Acts 2, this is where Peter, right, stood up in the midst of all these people from all throughout the known world and preached this just amazing sermon. The Holy Spirit came down, right? And many were, believe, or were saved and believed and were converted and were called out of the world and into Christ's body. The, the church was begun on that day. The, the, the Greek word for church is ekklesia. It's the called out ones. And so we see that as a message of the gospel is preached, those who hear and understand and turn and abandon their previous ways and turn to the gospel of Jesus are um, adopted in and called out of the world and into this body, Christ's body, which is the church. So it's an amazing thing uh, that happened there. And then those people went back to Rome. And so most scholars would agree that those people that were saved there at Pentecost went back to Rome and established this church. And we see Paul here uh, writing this letter to the church of Rome. So Paul didn't start this church. It was started kind of from the ground, ground up. Uh, and uh, he had, a, as you read the letter, just a, a really desire, great desire to want to go and visit this church and be with them because it seems as if there was no apostolic teaching going on there. They all went back and they were a church and they were, they were claiming the name of Jesus and walking in the name of Jesus, but there was really no apostolic teaching that was going on. And so Paul was, was hindered. He couldn't get there. He's, he's writing all this and explaining this in this letter to the Romans. And so what he decides to do is instead write this letter and this so grateful for this letter. This, what we call the book of Romans, is just a superb, systematic presentation of the gospel. So here's this church, following, trying and striving after Jesus. And Paul's concern is, hey, we've got to make sure that all these people that were coming in from Rome, you know, to Rome where this, uh, the world was meeting in the center, the Jews and Gentiles, they were, the gospel was going out and people were getting saved. We've got to make sure the gospel message doesn't get watered down. It doesn't get changed. 
And so Paul systematically lays out in the first 11 chapters of the book of Romans what the gospel of Jesus Christ is. And his thesis statement, Romans 1.16, he says, and he's starting off the letter, for I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Gentiles. And we see here, as we open up in verse 1 of 15, now we who are strong ought to bear the weaknesses of those without strength and not just please ourselves. See, what is evident as you read the book of Romans is those Jews that went back and they established the church, but as the gospel message began to call out, people began to believe and they would begin to join in this church in Rome, right? But these would be not only Jews, but Gentiles. And these people were coming from all different uh, nations and different cultures and different backgrounds and different upbringings. They're all coming under one roof. And so you could see the potential for things to get a little messy, right? And so Paul is demonstrating here um, that it's for both Jew and Gentile, and most of his, of, his, of the first 11 chapters of Romans. And he, he's claiming here, here in verse 1, now we who are strong ought to bear the weaknesses of those without strength and not just please ourselves. And he's building off of what he was teaching in chapter 14. And you can just imagine all these different people coming into the church and all having things that they're still grasping onto and not quite understanding the full message of the gospel. And then there's some that are really strong in the faith, but there's some who are weak, right? And so Paul addresses this in, in chapter 14. And I gotta be careful because that's a whole nother sermon in itself. But I do wanna provide you the, the background of why Paul writes this in verse one of 15, right? There's strong Christians. And, and so he, Paul refers to strong and weak in this church at Rome, and there's two options, okay? The weak could have been Jews who were always following the Mosaic law and keeping all the ordinances as far as what foods they could or could not eat, celebrating the festivals when they were supposed to, trying to be as, you know, live out their Jewish traditions as best as they can to please their God. And then they encounter this message of Jesus as the only way as the Messiah, as the only means of salvation, and it's not of works, but it is of what he's done on their account. And so they abandon that, but there are some that are, that are still holding on. They, they think by, by celebrating a festival, they might worship Jesus in a better way. They want to pay tribute to him in that way. Right? Or they refrain from eating meat, eating meat out of their love for Jesus. Right? And then there's some who say, no. It's not about the law anymore. It's about what Jesus has done. And so I, I know that I, don't buy, I can eat whatever I want. Everything is clean in the eyes of the Lord now. And so we see these different perspectives going on here. And it also could be, the second option could be the Gentiles who were saved. They were saved out of a pagan culture who worshiped idols and made meat sacrifices to idols. And so if you were steeped in that and you heard the gospel of Jesus Christ and you turned from that and you embraced the God of the scriptures... And you went to church and they, someone sat down a slab of meat that you bought, they bought at a cheaper rate because it was a sacrifice to, a, to an idol, right? Would that tug at your heart? I don't want to participate in that. I used to worship that God or that idol. I don't want to touch it. So it could be two of those things. It could be one option or both options. We don't really know. But we, Paul is referring to strong and weak we're all in the, it's been under the basic understanding that we're all coming from different perspectives. We all have different hangups. And what Paul's saying in Romans 14 is you shouldn't be judging each other. 
You shouldn't be having clicks over here and clicks over there. Those who abstain from me, those who partake of me, right? The goal is to be unified. You shouldn't judge one another. And so Paul's laying that out and we can, we can know that whatever was going on, it wasn't an essential of the faith. These are what we call non-essentials. And we know that because in other letters, like the letters Paul wrote to Galatia or the Colossian church or the Corinthian church, if there were things that the church were doing that were outside the essentials of the Christian faith, he was sure to address them. And he would call them out on it and say, this is a false gospel. This is not what Christ has come. All right? You can read those letters and you can see that very clearly. So we know whatever's going on here at the church of Rome isn't that essential doctrine. It's some non-essential stuff that was going on. And Paul says, don't be judging each other over it. Work to be unified. And that's what he, where we come in the verse one. Now we who are strong ought to bear the weaknesses of those without strength and not just please ourselves. Um, Paul's talking about not just putting up with someone that doesn't believe the same way. He's not saying, look, don't judge them. But at the same time, he's not saying, and don't ever talk to them or, in, or interact with them. Right? What he's calling us to is something higher. He's saying we ought to bear the weaknesses. Bear means to pick up by a, a weighty thing that needs to be picked up. We need to come alongside those that are weak, those that have those hangups, and not just not judge them or keep them isolated, but what he's calling us to is a, a life of, to serve them and to walk alongside of them and to bear their burden and to disciple them. Right? It goes on in verse 2. Each of us is to please his neighbor for his good to his edification. That's the difference that a Christian should manifest, right? Out of our love for Jesus, we're seeking to serve those around us. Not to be, have higher favor with God, but because of what God has done for us. And Paul touches on that here in this text. It's about our neighbor and for building our neighbor up. And even the person that might have offended you or even the person that um, you just can't stand being around. Those are the people that God's asking us to go to and not just put up with them, but walk alongside them. Bear their weaknesses with them. It's not about pleasing ourselves. He goes on in verse three, for even Christ did not please himself. That's the heart motivation that we all need to, to grasp onto here. We can't serve others and do all these things. We can't go home going, I just need to work harder and try to do a better job at being friendly or connecting in the church or I need to, what Christ or what Paul is saying here is first we need to understand our motivation for it. And what is the motivation he provides for us? For even Christ did not please himself. Christ, according to Philippians 2 and numerous other passages in the New Testament, stepped into his creation and became in the form of a servant. And he went on to live the perfect life, to live the law out completely so that he might be the spotless lamb of God who would go to the cross and take on our sin. That the wrath of God would be poured out on him on that day instead of us. Christ wasn't about himself. He was about us. Paul's asking us, as he's, ask, as he's asking us to, to bear the weaknesses, we have to remember what the motivation is, what Christ has done on our behalf. He goes on in this verse to quote Psalm 69, 9. The reproaches 
of those who reproached you fell on me. This is a messianic psalm. The psalms were written about 1000 BC before Christ was even born. And Paul is demonstrating that Jesus, the Christ, the Messiah has come and he has fulfilled this prophecy, this messianic psalm. And he, Paul's doing something else. He's, he's building a, 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 beginning to build an argument here. It's an argument that he uses uh, to springboard into the demonstration as to why us as believers, the, the church at Rome, and even us today, can all unite around the object of our hope. So he goes on here in verse 4. For whatever was written in earlier times was written for our instruction, so that through perseverance and the encouragement of the Scriptures... We might have hope. He used Psalm 69 as evidence that Jesus fulfilled this messianic psalm. And he's beginning to instruct to us as believers why we can have hope. For whatever was written in earlier times was written for first our instruction. And that as we look and peer into God's redemption story that is laid out in scripture, we can have perseverance in those hard times. We can have encouragement as we look how God is fulfilling what he's promised to do throughout human history. And it can provide us hope as we do that. I'm so grateful for the scriptures. I spent um, my early adulthood just living for me, trying to satisfy my Desires anything that the, the world would give me. Not wanting anything to do with God, but just pleasing me. And as I began to get older and into my teens, and as I left high school and had that identity crisis of who am I? What am I here for? What is the purpose of life? All those things that I had tried were just vain and hollow. I went to college and tried to buy into their evolutionary theory and God doesn't exist and God is dead and how silly people are to, to think that way and this world can be demonstrated in science and I tried to buy into it as best as I can but thankfully I had the opportunity to go um, I was a river guide in high school and college and rafted whitewater rafted all over the west and had an opportunity to go on a 21 day, 21 day trip down the Grand Canyon and uh, it was the most uh, just early 20s and it was just a splendid time to to be down there and um that's where god began to reveal himself to me and he revealed himself to me in in his general revelation it's called psalm 19 1 says the heavens are telling of the glory of god and their expanse is declaring the work of his hands i was down there in the bottom of that crack i didn't have any distractions I couldn't just flip on my smartphone and start watching YouTube. I couldn't turn on the TV. I couldn't go down and have dinner at the restaurant and fill my belly. Right? I was just down in the bottom of this crack in the earth, forced to look at this just marvelous creation. At night, it was like a kaleidoscope. The stars would, because of the narrow canyon, walls of the canyon, stars would appear on one side and disappear on the other. And all night long, stars just rotating and my mind would go, how many stars are up there? This happened by chance? I would see just the perfect order in nature and you know, how everything, the ecosystem was uh, designed. And, and I could say, this is certainly designed by something. 
or somebody. This didn't just happen by chance. Paul even mentions general revelation in, in Romans 120. He says, For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made, so that they are without excuse. I had 21 days to observe that. And I floated out of that Grand Canyon into Lake Mead with no excuse. There was a creator. I had, to, I had to come to that conclusion. And that's what his general revelation points to. All people are without excuse in that regard. The problem comes is God's general revelation doesn't tell me who he is or how I have relationship with him or how I can be reconciled to him if that needs to happen. Needs to happen. Those things don't appear in general revelation. And, and so it began a journey. I floated out of there purposed to... To, to have a re- relationship or find this God. And I thought that it would be in workspace religion. And so I went and I devoted my entire being to, to trying to do this list, list of things that I had to do in order to be accepted by this creator and this God. Only to always fall short. Only to just remember those mornings, just walking in, putting on my tie, knowing the ugliness that was going on inside of me. And having to pretend like everything's good on the outside. That I had some type of worth to offer this God. And it just became overwhelming. And I just had to abandon it. I, I, I desired to have a relationship with him. But if it depended on me and what I had done, then I just couldn't do it. I could be a lot of things, but I can't be a hypocrite. And so I just moved on and I began to, again, got a good job and had lots of money. And I was just trying to put everything into this big void in my heart that this world had to offer. And it led to nothing but despair and emptiness. Those late nights looking at myself in the mirror going, you have no purpose. You have no meaning. That is until... I told the group this morning in the first service, my 10-year-old said, you're going to do good today, Daddy, this morning at breakfast. I'm like, thank you, honey. She goes, just don't cry. (laughs) So I'm being strong for her. I'm going to be strong for you. Um, A a Baptist preacher who had a heart to plant a church in Cedar City, Utah, moved in across the street from me, and he, he began to share the gospel the good news that is found in Scripture. God's special revelation. It had the answers of who I am, what I was made for, what my purpose in life was for. It also had the answers of this chaos that what's going on in this world. Is recently, right after September 11th, and the, you remember how the country was just shaken to its core. That moment I was there, and this book entered my life, and this message of a redeeming gospel and who this creator was began to uh, be shared with me. And not, not only who I am and what it was, but what was going on in my, in my heart. According to Romans chapter 3, I can't do enough good. I have no righteousness that can make me pleasing in the eyes of God. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, according to Paul in Romans chapter 3. But the good news, there's good news. Jesus Christ came, 
to pay that penalty for you and for me. The good news of Jesus Christ, God's redemption story is found in the scriptures. And all we have to do, thankfully, all we have to do is turn from our way of doing things, abandon our hope and what we've placed it in and turn to the Lord Jesus Christ and his accomplished work on the cross and believe and trust in him. That's the message, the good news of the gospel. The Bible, Nathaniel said that last week. It's a collection of 66 books written by 40 different authors on three different continents in three different languages over a period of 1,500 years. Yet, it is one consistent and unified story. So thankful for the scriptures that I can know who God is and I can know how I can have relationship with him to the gospel of Jesus Christ. And look, it's even more. According to verse 4, it was written for our instruction. You want a roadmap to get through life, to, to navigate through the difficulties and the, the sin and the muck and the mire of this world? Turn to the scriptures. And as we do so, Paul says here, it provides us perseverance, patience, and encouragement in those difficult times of life. I know many of you are going through many struggles in your life right now. And God's given us a means in which we can connect with him. And I hope that you can see that what a great gift the scriptures are. That we can turn to him. And as we see what God is doing in scripture, we can have hope. Because what he's doing is he promises, like in uh, Psalm 69.9, he promises a Messiah. And then he fulfills his promise. We can have hope and we can trust in him because of his faithfulness. We go on here and we come to our first prayer that Paul gives in verse 5 and 6. And it's my first prayer for you and us this morning. It says, Now may the God who gives perseverance and encouragement grant you to be of the same mind with one another, according to Christ Jesus, so that with one accord you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. This is Paul's prayer for unity for the church. How important it is as a church body, as a group of called out ones, to be unified in the message of the gospel. Paul goes on in Ephesians. He writes to the church at Ephesus and he, he repeats his same, the same desire of his struggle in, in wanting the church to be unified. He says in verse two, with all humility and gentleness and patience, showing tolerance for one another in love, being diligent to preserve the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace. Why is it so important for us to be unified? I, uh, I went to Bible college at a later age, my late thirties. Family, extended family thought I was crazy pulling my kids out of school and taking them down to California and going to Bible college. And they're like, pretty sure they thought it was a midlife crisis, whatever. But we went down there and uh, it was just a great time. Uh, did a lot of healing, did a lot of learning in Bible college. Uh, but the one part that was just kind of a burn in my saddle was the, uh, the general education requirements. Like they have the requirements for, I was doing biblical studies and biblical counseling. So I was taking those classes, loving it. 
right? Getting in God's word and, and mining out its truths and all that stuff. But they had these general education requirements, these, requir- these classes that you had to take, the lower division stuff that made you a, a more well-rounded person or individual, right? And uh, so the, I put those off. I did some of them in my younger years, but I put the ones I really disdained the most off to the very end. So I had to take those while I was in Bible college, and one was math, right? And then the second one was music appreciation, and I am from the sticks. Give me a good country song. All right, we're good. That's music. Not this Beethoven box stuff. And so I had to sit through this class and learn all the instrumentality of the whatevers and orchestra this. And but part of the requirement was that I had to go and listen to a symphony and then, you know, write a paper describing my experience and how the sounds, you know, did this and that and... And so I put it off to the very last minute. And finally, out of desperation, I started Googling and I found that L.A. Philharmonic was going to be playing Beethoven there in the downtown L.A. And so I also heard from a fellow student that if, if you go and show your student ID, that you'll get a, like, a, like a $5 ticket. I'm like, sweet. It won't cost me much. I'll just get in there, get the cheap seats. We'll be good. I even did my due diligence. I went online and I said, what do I need to wear? Do I need to wear like a tie or a tux? Or, and it says, oh, just come as you are. So I came with slacks and a collar shirt. Well, someone messed up. Either the person who gave me the ticket or the computer, they gave me like up front, middle seat, like in, like in the midst of all this, these Hollywood elite people, all dressed out, decked out, full tuxes, full everything. Here I am walking in with a college shirt and they're looking at me. I'm like, I'm a college student. Yeah, I'm 38 years old college student. Trust me. Right? So, so I just felt completely out of place. And so I sit down and everyone, there's a mumble of the crowd and all of a sudden the orchestra comes out and they seat and starts to quiet down a little bit. Then the conductor comes out and it becomes really quiet and he stands up to the, to, to the podium and he, I was supposed to Google whatever that little wand was in between services. So he grabs the wand, right? And, uh, and and everyone's quiet. And so I'm observing all this. And I can see, because I'm in the front, that all these people are from different nations and different cultures and obviously different upbringings I could deduce. And, and, uh, but all they were all there, right, to play Beethoven. And the conductor began. And as they begin to play all these different instruments... Ranging, a, you guys know all the different instruments that are in an orchestra. They're, they're crazy, but they're all different. But they all begin to play this one harmonious, beautiful composition by Beethoven. It blew me away. Here's this redneck from the sticks. And I am like captivated by this message that Beethoven has written. And these people who have come together with diversity of cultures and backgrounds and stuff and of all uh, in one harmonious movement begin to play this just beautiful song it was amazing I was blown away and just a caveat to this did you guys know that composers they write like uh, pauses like for dramatic effect in the middle of measures you're not supposed to clap during those pauses just so you know (laughs) Right? I was so carried away. There's this pause. I'm like, whoa, yeah. Just started. And all of a sudden, all these hissing and stuff. Look, you know, they're all staring me down. I'm like, Sorry, I'm going back to the sticks shortly. 
Yeah, just, just wait till everyone starts, else starts clapping, those that are sophisticated and know these things. All right, yeah. Yeah, I'm that guy. So I'm sure everybody that's going to India with me are like really confident in my abilities by now, right? So anyway, but it was beautiful. Now imagine for a second if that, the first chair violinist decided they didn't want to play the same tempo as the conductor wanted the orchestra to do. So just in the, their own desire, they just started playing a different tempo. And say the French horn section, you know what? They've been talking about it for weeks, that they are sick and tired of being upstaged by the violinists and the stringed instruments. So when, when they hear the first violinist start going, they're like, now's our time. And so they all run, and they run around, and they put their chairs in front of the first string violinist, and they start doing their thing, right? So they can be, have their 15 seconds of fame, say, look at me. And then the flutist, flutist, is that right? Probably not. I was supposed to Google that too. Whoever plays the flute. She's sick and tired of never being heard. I, or he has never been heard. I've never heard of a flute when the, I can't hear it, but I guess you can hear it if you have the ear. But she gets sick and tired of um, not being heard. So she gets up and she, she takes somebody's two, you know, trump, trumpet or something and she starts playing because she wants to. So, and then in the meantime, the, the majority of the, the symphony is, are trying to just follow the conductor and do what the conductor is asking them to do. Do you think that beautiful message is going to get a little muddied? People are still looking on the outside and they're, they're seeing a very confused message now because they're no longer in unity. And I think it's the same for us, church. We should strive for un- be unified as Paul says in verse six, so that with one accord, you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. It's about his glory. And then if we don't pursue unity, our message becomes muddied. It's not with one voice. And we should all strive to glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And so Paul ends his prayer and he goes on for instruction here in verse 7. He says, therefore, so it's a concluding statement here. Because of this, therefore, accept one another. And we see here how Paul has first identified the source in which we can change, right? In his prayer. Now may God who gives perseverance and encouragement grant you to be of the same mind with one another according to Christ Jesus. But we also see in verse 7 that it's not about just letting go and letting God and being passive about it. We, as we understand that the God the Spirit who enables the heart or dwells the heart of the believer can enable us to do these things, Paul's then asking us to step out and actively pursue it. Therefore, accept one another. And that's the hard part, right? Someone's just completely destroyed you or hurt your feelings. You don't want to have to ever talk to them again. Someone's, um, maybe you need to apologize, but you just can't find it in your heart to ever uh, admit that you were wrong. All these things, this is where Paul is saying, hey, Yes, God will enable you. God will grant you the power to do this. But you must step out. You must do your part. It's a cooperative part with the Holy Spirit. Therefore, accept one another. And again, he reminds us, and this is so important, church, of our motivation for doing so. Just as Christ also accepted us to the glory of God. Why should we do it? Well, as I mentioned earlier, I'm so glad that as the message of the Bible 
this unified message began to be uh, shown to me. I remember the moment I, I, I accepted Jesus in, in that small Baptist church in Cedar City, Utah, where I was new, I was under conviction of my sin. I'd always, always had that. And I knew I had to do something, right, to get that reconciled and get that, you know, all worked out with God. And I remember thinking, well, I'm in a Baptist church, so I'm not going to have to get baptized, right? And so my mind automatically started going to these things that I'm going to have to do to earn God's merit and favor. But the good news is, is Jesus will meet you right where you're at. You don't have to do all these things to have this relationship with you. He died for you. He took that payment for you so that you don't have to earn it. You can't earn it, according to Romans chapter 3. Jesus did it for you. All you have to do is believe and trust in that good news, that gospel message, and follow Jesus. Turn away from the things we used to do and turn to the living God. Turn away from the idols that we placed in our life that we leave for and, and t- turn to seek and please the living God who has died for us and paid that immense and eternal punishment on our behalf. And as we accept that, if we, as we understand that, Christ met us where we're at. And Paul's saying here, as you turn to accept one another, don't put stipulations on them before you give them acceptance. Just as Christ also accepted us to the glory of God, we didn't do anything to deserve it. We didn't merit anything. He did it for us. And Paul's saying, just as Christ did this for you, now accept one another. Don't give them a laundry list of things they have, must do before they're accepted into the brethren or whatever. And we got to just make sure that our motivation is that, what Christ has done for us. And then in turn, we turn and walk alongside one another. We, you know, with God's strength, uh, begin to accept one another and bear one another's burdens and walk along with them. And as we do that, we do it for the glory of God. And we become unified in doing so with one accord and with one voice for God's glory. Verse 8, as we go on, For I say that Christ has become a servant to the circumcision on behalf of the truth of God to confirm the promises given to the fathers and for the Gentiles to glorify God for his mercy. As it is written, Therefore I will give praise to you among the Gentiles, and I will sing to your name. And so Paul is again referencing the Old Testament. Again, we're imagined in an audience that is both Jew and Gentile alike, and right, and it looks like there might be some schism there and some cliques going on. And so Paul's trying to show, no, wait a minute, this gospel has always not about just been about the Jews, but it's always been about the Gentiles for the world. It's always been God's aim and God's measure. And he uses the Old Testament to reference that. He points them back to an Old Testament passage of the Gentiles, and he goes on to offer more textual proof in the Old Testament. In verse 10, says, again, he says, rejoice, O Gentiles, with this people. That's in Deuteronomy 32. Verse 11, he quotes the book of Psalms, Psalm 117, or Psalm 117. Praise the Lord, all you Gentiles, and let all the peoples praise him. And in verse 12, he pulls from Isaiah, there shall come the root of Jesse, and he who arises to rule over the Gentiles, and him shall the Gentiles hope. 
So like a skilled lawyer, Paul is, is pointing back to this specific revelation that God has allowed to be recorded throughout human history as a means of proof that, number one, it's both Jew and Gentile. He's always had the Gentiles in mind. But number two, that God always fulfills what he has promised in the past. The Torah was committed to writing around 1300 B.C., The book of Psalms was written around 1000 BC. The book of Isaiah was written around 700 BC. Yet they all point to this one Messiah figure who would come. Paul uses the three major subdivisions of the Tanakh, the the, the Jewish Old Testament. And those are the law. Those are the the law of Moses is the one major subdivision. There's the writings, right? Which are the Psalms and Proverbs and, and certain things like that. And then there's the prophets. And Paul uses each one of those major subdivisions that a Jew would know and saying, see, it's never been always about the Jew. It's been about the Gentile as well. And him shall the Gentiles hope. And we can find hope and encouragement in knowing that God is faithful in what he has promised. God is faithful. And because of that, we can have hope as we put our trust in him. And then his promises. We move on here to Paul's second prayer this morning. Verse 13. And again, it's my second prayer for us as well, church. Now may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing so that you will abound in hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. What an amazing prayer. What a reminder to know it's not about my doing. It's not about my strength. It's not about me picking myself up by my own bootstraps. It's about the power of the Holy Spirit doing a work inside of me. Changing me from my ugliness to the transformation that happens from the inside out of becoming more and more like Christ as I look to him and lean to him and learn from him and and commune with him in scripture and in prayer. It's not about how strong we are or how faithful we are, but it's about how strong and faithful our God is. We can have hope in him because he who is promised is faithful. We can trust in him. And so as we wrap up this morning, I just want to do something a little different. James, The book of James talks about being hearers of the word and not doers. And so I just want to provide us an opportunity as we go to prayer that each of you might, well, just have some quiet time, that you can have some time for your prayer for unity, that you would ask God to grant you the perseverance and encouragement and strength to pursue unity in this church body or in your connection group or, or the missions team, because we know it comes from him. And the second prayer that you might do this morning is, your prayer for hope. I got to admit, you know, I've been walking with the Lord 14 years now and it seems like I'm doing fine and all of a sudden I just find myself in like full of anxiety and fear and in my flesh and just working really hard and being exhausted mentally and spiritually and I, I, I just come and find myself not having my hope and what I need to be and it is in my Lord. 
not gaining or garnering or pursuing the, the, the enabling grace that he can give me as I look to the, the power of the Holy Spirit to do that with inside of me. My, uh, my daughter's, their grandpa, Tara's dad, is, he's an old cowboy. Even, I guess he did this with Tara and her sisters too. He's got an old bench seat truck and they'll be driving down the road and he'll just, you know, with big strong hands, he'll reach down and grab their, just above their knee and they'll start squeezing. And they'll, he won't stop until the girls say, big girl, big girl, right? And uh, then, then, then they need to stop. And I just think as believers, that's kind of what we have to do on a consistent basis. Where we are just fighting and struggling in our own strength and our own power. And God has to bring us to the end of ourselves. Where we just say, well, big girl, I guess it won't work for me. Uncle, uncle, I give. Lord, I can't do it. I can't do it in my own strength and power anymore. I know this, but here I am in my own strength and power. I give. Uncle, help me, Lord. And so my prayer, this as we have the band come up this morning, is a, your prayer for unity. Just spend some time with the Lord, asking for his enabling power in that, and asking him for the joy and peace as you believe and trust in his promises that's promised there in verse 13. And that we might abound, right? Abound in hope because of who God is and what he has promised. And I just want to say, if, you, if you're here this morning and you've never had that um, saving interaction with Jesus where you've abandoned what you thought was good or thought was right, whether that's workspace religion or just being good or whatever, and you hear this message and the Spirit of God is, is convicting you of its truth, the good news is that you don't have to do anything other than turn to him. He will meet you where you're at. He's a loving God. He's given us this precious gift of salvation. And all he asks you to do is swallow your pride and turn to him. And he will save you. That's his promise to us. And I testify of its truth. This message has been brought to you by Alpine Bible Church in Lehigh, Utah. If you'd like more information, please visit us online at alpinebible.com.